Well, good morning. Uh, before we get started, I do want to highlight an announcement for this week. Uh, coming up on March 25th, and this will be from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., uh, noted author Nancy Guthrie will be here uh, to lead women through a uh, workshop on biblical theology. Now, you might ask the question, why do I want to go to that? Well, let me answer that question for you. So, some of you still have Christmas trees up, and I'm not judging. <laughs> not judging. But we all have those special ornaments that we want to hang up, right? The ones that we've collected over the years. The Christmas tree gives those ornaments a context. It might not seem like much, but it gives structure and context to those ornaments, right? Biblical theology gives structure and context to the verses that we've memorized, the biblical stories that we've learned, and it helps us to get, get, get context on the overarching themes of Scripture. And so what Nancy's going to be doing is she's going to be going from Genesis to Revelation and helping women understand the overarching theological themes of Scripture so that you can hang those ornaments of God's Word on that structure. So I'd encourage you to go to it. Uh, to invite others to it, uh, for more information about it, or to sign up, you have to RSVP. Go to apostles.org, and there you will find all the links that you need. Today we're going to be in Daniel 1, 1 through 8, Daniel 1, 1 through 8, and I would give you the, uh, the number of the, the Pew Bible, but I have no idea what it is. Um, but it's probably pretty easy to find. Daniel 1, 1 through 8. Over the past few weeks, Dr. Yusuf has been pointing out the foundations of discipleship in the Discipleship 101 series. And I've got uh, a few of the points that he, he, he talked about there. He's shown us uh, that the disciples' faith must be founded on God's sovereignty, God's holiness, God's guidance, and God's indescribable love. In the book of Daniel, we see how a disciple who has placed his faith in God sees the world around him and understands that the Lord is in his midst. Even though he and his friends are exiles, Peter indicates that we also are exiles. And we live in a culture where the desires of the world and even the world system war against our souls. So we have to understand how to see the world through this lens of discipleship, this heart of discipleship that God has given us. Daniel 1, 1 through 8, Lord says this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, 
he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today looking at the story in your word, the story of how a man, Daniel, a mere man, Daniel, and his friends saw the world through the lens of, of, of these Discipleship 101 things and were able to stand firm because of what they saw, what they understood, and the spirit you placed in them. Lord, help us to see that today as well. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you remember back to the early 1990s, stereograms were very popular. I think we've got an example of a stereogram. Okay, do you remember these? Who remembers these? Okay. Um, and su supposedly you're supposed to sit there and you're supposed to kind of cross your eyes a little bit and let your eyes go, you know, I don't know, rest your eyes, I don't know. And then suddenly an image, a 3D image is supposed to pop out from the, from the background. Well, I was really good at these. I, maybe it's because I'm spaced out already, I don't know. But I was really good at these. And I had friends who could never see them. And they used to tell me that I was, I was, I was playing a cruel joke. It was like some big joke that everybody was playing on, on, on people that this was not really a picture. And some people go, I think I see snow or, you know, I, I think I see the, like, the static on a TV. I'm like, that's, that's not the picture. How many of you can see the picture up here? Raise your hand if you can see the picture. What is it? It's a shark. It's a shark. So some of you have eyes to see, right? So the rest of you, I'm sorry, you're not chosen. No, that's not what this means. But it is a great illustration of, of, of the fact that God gives, this is what you're supposed to see right there, the shark jumping out at you. This is a great illustration of the fact that God gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. And when we see the world a certain way or, or, or we believe a certain thing, the world thinks we're crazy. In fact, the world thinks it's a, it's a big hoax that we can't possibly see what we see in the picture of the world that God has put before us. That it must be some kind of cruel joke, a hoax, or we're just insane. But we know that God has given us eyes to see. Discipleship helps us to refine our eyes of faith to see with greater clarity the hand of God in our lives. It helps us to see the world, what the world is blinded to and cannot see. And here in Daniel 1, 1 through 8, and the rest of Daniel, we see the fruit of discipleship in the lives of four men. And in applying it to our own lives, we see that we must filter our lives through the lens of a disciple heart. We must filter our lives through the lens of a disciple heart. Where in the world am I getting that? Look at verse 8. You see the results of the fruit of Daniel filtering what happened to Israel and, as well as his own situation through the lens of faith and who God is. It says this, But Daniel resolved, that's his response, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. His response to being asked to, comp to compromise his faith was a resolution, not a pull himself by, uh, up by his own bootstraps kind of re resolution, not trying to trust in his own strength. The Hebrew reflects here that it was an issue of the heart that was firmly grounded in his faith in the Lord. 
He had a deep understanding of God's holiness, which caused him not to want to defile himself. If you look back at verses 1 through 2, you can actually see Daniel filtering the situation he experienced through this lens of faith. And before we look at those words, I just want to be clear. Daniel is writing these words, and we know that because he, re- he reveals that he's the writer of Daniel in chapters 9 and 10. And not only that, Jesus identifies Daniel as the writer of this book in Matthew 24, 15. So let's take a look at what, what Daniel is seeing through the lens of faith here in verses 1 and 2. In the, year, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Did you catch it? Did it it pop out like that stereogram, at least the two of you that saw the stereogram? The defeat of Jehoiakim and the fall of Jerusalem is is not the result of Nebuchadnezzar's skill. It's not a result of his military power or the power of his gods. He thinks it is. That's why he brings these articles from the temple back to honor his gods. And I'm sure that would have been the view of the world around him at the time. Nebuchadnezzar was ascribing victory to his gods through the lens of his own faith. But through the discipled heart, Daniel sees it much differently. Verse 2 does not say, And Bel gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Nor does it say, And Aku gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. What does it say? And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord. Understanding from Scripture that God is sovereign and God had prophesied that this day would come from Moses' warning even all the way back in Deuteronomy 28. And his consistent warnings through the prophets, Daniel sees this not as a failure on God's part to protect his people or a failure of God to keep his promises. On the contrary, he sees it as God keeping the promise he promised if they did not turn back to God and continue to run after false gods he would send them out of the land. So Daniel is able to call this what it is. It's an act of discipline from the Lord. It's a loving discipline of the Lord to turn the people back to faith in him. As exiles who find ourselves in a culture that is foreign to us, it would serve us well to understand what Daniel understands, to see life through that lens of a discipled heart, through the lens of faith. But why? Why should we? Well, I want to talk about two reasons why today that we can see here in in Scripture. And the first is because our exile, our exile here in this world, challenges our view of how we see the world. Sometimes our situations speak louder than the things we know to be true. All all it takes is is a sudden veering away in life from what we thought God should do to something that we didn't think that he'd ever allow, and that causes us to question our faith and lose our focus. Go back to verse 2 and think about what just happened. Here's this monumental national tragedy that's unfolding in front of the, the, the people of Israel and the reader here. It would be like Pearl Harbor or the, the JFK assassination, the Challenger disaster, or September 11th. What would keep you as a nation glued to your TV? That's what's happening here. This is the fall of Judah, the nation that, the, the, the nation that had survived the exile of, of Israel. 
as the nation was divided into two. Judah had finally fallen. The temple had fallen. God is still God, even when we don't understand what he's doing. And that doesn't mean that God is, it doesn't mean that, that God is weak or non-existent or unsympathetic. It simply means that we don't understand what he's doing. But when you live daily life in the foreign territory of a fallen world, it becomes easy to let your situation speak louder than God's word. This happens to us both passively as we try to mentally process a situation and actively when our faith is overtly challenged by the culture around us. So what are those passive challenges that Daniel faces here and that we also face? Let's look at verse 1 and then at verse 5 and think about what might have been going through the minds of these young men as they were taken out of Israel. It says in verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king, uh, the, the king of Babylon, came in, in, to Jerusalem and besieged it. He besieged it. There was a siege. Verse 5, The king assigned them, these are the men that he brought out, a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. Now, I want you to think about the emotional tension of those two verses. We don't know much about what this particular siege of Jerusalem looked like. The siege, sieges were a bad thing. We know from Zedekiah's siege, the siege of Zedekiah, who was supposed to be a puppet king of Nebuchadnezzar, it was very brutal. And we know from the siege that took place in 70 A.D., that it was also very brutal. People were starving and driven to desperate acts. So here are these young men, okay? Get this. They were starving under the kingship of God. But what are they doing under the kingship of Nebuchadnezzar? They're eating their fill. And not just eating their fill. They're eating their fill of the king's food and drinking their fill of the king's wine. Can you imagine what that felt like? Can you imagine the emotional tension would have driven them to think, God didn't provide for us back in Jerusalem. God provided for us, or Nebuchadnezzar has provided for us at, at this table. That's the kind of, of passive thoughts that would have gone through their mind. It's the same kind of thoughts that went through the mind of the, of the, of the people that left during the Exodus, the, the Jews that left during the Exodus, when they said, why did you bring us in the desert to die? Life was better for us when we were slaves back in Egypt. It's the same kind of passive pressures that are put on us. Have you been there? And I'm not going to act for a, ask for a show of hands, but is there a situation even in your, in, in your life now, an unanswered prayer, a wayward family member, attention in living out your values at work uh, that causes you to, to, to quietly think, was my life better before I was a believer? Was life better when I was in Egypt? Is it easier to do it the world's way than to do it God's way? Because that's what these men were probably thinking as they sat at that table. Is it better to do it the world's way? The only way that Daniel and his friends could overcome these passive challenges was to, to understand that their view of the world was based on God's word. They could remember in Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14, these words, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and, and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, 
and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. As Bruce read today, we comfort ourselves with the words of of the Thessalonians saying that Christ will return. We will be caught up to him in glory. They comforted themselves with the fact that God had made the promise that he would bring them out of exile. That he was sovereign even over this situation. And that is how they filtered their situation through the lens of a disciple heart. We all have an inner dialogue, and many times that inner dialogue is wrong. Thankfully, Daniel had his other three friends there to remind him when he had times where he doubted and vice versa. We all get stuck. We need the help of our Christian friends. But as much as our Christian friends help us, the testimony of Scripture is louder than even them. When we're tempted to believe that God doesn't see or care about our tears, Daniel could, and we can recall Psalm 56, 8 that says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? He sees and hears. When we fear that we face what we face is bigger than God's plan, Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. See, Daniel knew God's promises to bring Israel out of exile. We know God's promise that Jesus will return that God is faithful to his promises. But our challenges as we live as exiles in this world aren't just passive, they're also active. Look at verses three and four. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. These young men were conscripted to learn the literature and the language of the Babylonians for three years. Now, by getting them to study the literature and language of the Babylonians, they weren't just saying, hey, this is just an introduction to who we are, welcome. They were indoctrinating them. This wasn't just a study of poetry. This was a radical transformation of their worldview from that of Jews to that of Babylonians. They would have read the mythology and the cosmology that would have challenged their understanding of God as creator and their understanding of their purpose in the world. Many times throughout history, fascists and dictatorial regimes have done exactly this. In the early days of the Soviet Union, um, there there are stories from various parts of the Soviet Union and the satellite states around it that Soviet officials came into schoolrooms and they would ask the children to pray to God to put candy on the table. And when they did and nothing happened, they were jeered. And then they asked the children, pray to, pray to Lenin and ask for candy. And so the candy was brought in and dumped before them. So who would they think would be stronger? Who do they think is mightier? They would think that the state was mightier than God. We are surrounded by truths or false truths, false claims of truths, every single day. It's in our music. It's in our movies. It's in our commercials. It's on that TikTok feed or that Instagram feed that you scroll through endlessly. They're there. And sometimes we don't even realize 
those truths or those, or those false truths, what's challenging the truth that we believe. It happens more profoundly in colleges when, when professors try to alter the worldview of believers coming in overtly. It's around us all the time. Is the answer to shut yourself off from the world? Is, is the answer monasticism? That was the answer of some early Christians. But Jesus in his high priestly prayer in John 15, 14 through 15 prays this, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Here's the kicker. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. But why not, Jesus? It'd be so much easier. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. That's Jesus' prayer for us, which really points to the source of it all. The source of worldly wisdom and worldly truth is the evil one. And one of the ways that we are protected from it seeping into our hearts and our lives and the cultural system waging war against our souls is by what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Daniel and his friends were able to counteract the poison that was coming at, at them, seeping into them from the culture that surrounded them in Babylon by taking those messages captive and making them obedient to their Lord. By, by saying that I'm not going to let this drift past my conscience, I'm going to take this and I'm going to say this is not true. This is not true. This is not true. And they couldn't have done this without godly teachers parents and grandparents. We invest in the next generation when we, when we first learn to critically break down the messages that are hurled at us daily and then in turn help them do the same. So we must filter our lives through a heart of discipleship because our exile challenges our view on how we see the world, but also because our exile challenges our view of how we see ourselves. Identity has always been a crucial issue, but perhaps in these recent years, it's more important now than it has ever been. But how was the identity of Daniel and his friends challenged? Look at verses 6 and 7. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief eunuch gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. And the first thing we see here is that the exile challenges our view of how we see ourselves in that it strips us of our identity in the Lord. The Babylonians, in conforming to the, to them to the image of, of Babylon, went so far as to change their names. Why? Because here's what their names mean. We see their names, see what their names mean. Their names mean, Daniel means, my God is judge. Hananiah means, the Lord is gracious. Mishael means, who is what God is. And Azariah means, the Lord is a helper. When taken all together, Mishael's name asks the question that the rest of their names answer. Who is what God is? He is judge, he is helper, he is gracious. And these are all the things that, that they knew about the Lord that they must remember going into exile. Not only do they need to remember these attributes of God, it defines what God, God wants for them as their Lord. There is no one like him. Though he is judged Judah, he will be gracious and even in their exile, he'll help them. They need to remember those things. In a similar way, there's much power in our identity in Christ. 
When we come to Christ in faith, it is his cross and our redemption that names us and defines us. We are not our own. We were bought with a price, and it is his name that we bear. It is his name that gives us meaning. Now, I confess, I'm one of those people that watches movies uh, with an eye for that little glimmer of truth that they didn't mean to allow in, but they allowed in. And back in 1995, I was astounded as I watched the first 3D full-length movie, 3D animated movie, Toy Story. So here's this story, this, this subtext about a, 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 a toy that thinks he is actually a space ranger going through his life, and, the, and there's this whole comedic uh, part where they're like, no, you're not really a space ranger. You're a toy. And then he comes to the point of realization when he sees a commercial on TV, Buzz does, that he's not really a space ranger. He's a toy. And what happens to him? He loses his mind because he loses his sense of identity. But what brings him back? When he looks on his foot and sees the name of his owner written on his foot, he understands he has purpose. And when he understood that purpose, instead of trying to get back to whatever planet he thought he was from, all he could do was get back to that child's home because his purpose was to be his toy. Now, when I saw that, I nearly fell out of my seat I'm like, that's who we are. We, we live in these identities every single day. We think we're this. We think we're that. We try to live up to these identities. And what we really do is we, when we realize that's not who we are, we come crashing down. But it is our understanding that Christ has put his name upon us that helps us truly remember who we are. Isaiah 43 says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. That literally is going to happen in the lives of Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael as they're thrown into the fiery furnace. But they didn't just try to strip them of this identity. They tried to change their identity. So we, too, note that our exile changes our view of ourselves and that it gives us the identity of the world. The names that they're given have Babylonian meanings as well. Daniel's name was renamed Belshazzar, which means Bel protect his life. Hananiah was renamed Shadrach. I'm very fearful of the gods, is what that means. Mishael was renamed Meshach. I am of little account. Azariah was renamed Abednego. I am the servant of the shining one. Put it all together and you have, I'm very fearful of the gods. I'm of little account. Bell protect his life. I am the servant of the shining one. These are meant to instill fear of the Babylonian gods and a sense of smallness before them. And we've learned for years that they're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That is not who they are. That's not their names. Their names that they're given there are names of belittlement. And the world tries to mold us into its image and our children in its image by introducing a fear, a sense of fear and telling us that we're small. This, this, this story has been, been God's people's story throughout generations. And there are constant voices in the world telling us that we're, we're bad parents for teaching our kids our faith, that we're ignorant people, that we're intolerant, that we're hateful people. And that's what we're labeled with. 
The only way those assaults harm us is if we believe and embrace that identity that is foisted on us by the world. That goes back to what Paul was saying about those dots and stars. But when the world says, fear our power, we declare the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear. To their insistence that we are of little account, we say we are children of the king. We were bought through the shed blood of Christ and we're precious to him. When the world says we are not who we think we are, we say the Lord has identified us by his cross. So we must even see ourselves through the lens of our faith in Jesus. The result for Daniel in verse 8 is that he refuses to eat. Daniel knows too much. He's seen too much. He knows God so intimately that he cannot bring himself to eat of the king's table and defile himself. For us, we could be facing a disillusioning situation in life. Active resistance and mocking of our faith, it could be that we've never found our identity, or worse, we've lost sight of it. But the lens of faith in Christ, that active prayer pursuit of him, sets it all in context and refocuses our hearts on what truly matters. It does not take perfect physical eyes to see faith in Jesus. Francis was blinded at six weeks old after a botched procedure to cure an infection in her eyes. And when she was six months old, her father passed away, and she was raised by a faithful mother and grandmother. And these ladies raised her in the Christian faith and helped to train her spiritual eyes to see, even though her physical eyes had failed. By eight years old, Eight years old, she was beginning to write poetry and became known for it. Francis' submissions were printed regularly in the Saturday Evening Post. As it turned out, she had a gift to praise God. She penned some 9,000 hymns. In the course of her life, hymns that that helped people see God for who who he is. You know Francis as Fanny Crosby. When asked about her blindness, she would regularly exhibit her faith in Jesus by saying this, It seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank him for that dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. On another occasion, she responded to a well-meaning preacher who said, I think it's a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered you with so many other gifts. She said to him, do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would be that I was born blind. Because when I get to heaven... The first face that I shall ever gladden my sight to see will be that of my Savior. That is the lens of faith. We are aliens and strangers in this world, and the culture around us will, will, will challenge us who we are and whose we are. But we remember that if our identity is firmly in Christ and what he says about us and what he says about our situation, we need not fear. Because he's given us eyes to see the truth that the world cannot see, that we pray that they will see. We're going to close now by singing one of those hymns that Fanny Crosby penned, Blessed Assurance. If this is your story and this is your song, sing it loudly. If it's not your story and it's not your song, it can be today.
by placing your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that you will continue through the lens of faith to sharpen our focus, that our focus will be on Christ and him alone, and that we will remember that we are his. We were bought with a price, and we are who he says we are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.